Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Americans are living through a social crisis, contends Yuval Levin in his 2020 book, A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. In Levin's view, acrimony reigns in the media, both social and traditional. Public discussion of crucial policy matters has degenerated into finger-pointing. Congress is more of a platform for demagogues and a workplace for serious legislators who put the national interest above their own personal brands. Donald Trump is a classic example of this performative style of politics. Church attendance and other forms of worship are in decline. Academia is awash in identity politics. Even questions of what constitutes a family are in dispute. Meanwhile, our major social institutions in past decades, the bulwarks of comity and social progress, from universities to government at every level, From the Boy Scouts to the Catholic Church to public radio to Hollywood have been tarnished by scandals from college admissions ones to those related to sexual abuse or harassment. The federal courts have been politicized by both sides. And if things were not bleak enough, we are in the midst of a pandemic and consequent economic catastrophe. Depressed yet? Take heart, readers. Levin's book carts away out of this mess, as the title suggests. Or do you even agree that things are as bad as Levin paints them or that a renewal of American institutions is the way forward? Let's hear from the man himself on the moral state of the nation, and let's get the lowdown on why he thinks institutions, troubled as many of them are, can rise from the ashes and why we, as a people, desperately need them to do so. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Yaval Levin, the author of the 2020 book, A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Yuval, your book could not be more timely in that it is all about the lack of trust in American institutions and the imperative need for Americans to to unite, to unite, to rejuvenate them and believe in them once again. And here we are in crisis mode, both economically and from the standpoint of the peril to all of us, living in a time of pandemic. American institutions of many sorts are undergoing the stress test from hell right now. Indeed, ironically, as I started reading your book just a few months ago, the economy was thriving and the job market was booming. And yet, even at that point, you wrote about a despondent mood and of the dysfunction that torments our politics. And said that, we lack the grammar and vocabulary to talk about what is breaking down. Since I read those books, those words in your book, we have slid into a pandemic-induced economic slowdown and an unemployment crisis of historic proportions. In your view, how are institutions generally holding up? Which ones are rising to the occasion and which ones are faltering or failing entirely to deal with this crisis? Well, thank you first for the opportunity to talk about this in this moment. And, And you're right, as you say, this is a time when the challenges that face our institutions are especially obvious and evident, a time of crisis. The book is written before that crisis uh, in a time when seeing the trouble with our institutions took some real work, uh, or at least understanding the challenges we were facing through the lens of institutions took real effort. 
I would say in some respects, the the pandemic crisis and the economic crisis that's following it um, that we're seeing now um, are actually bringing some of us together in ways that might help with some of the social challenges that we've confronted, or at least some of our institutions are clearly rising to the challenge. We can complain all we want about politics, but in a lot of ways, our government has actually mobilized pretty effectively to deal with this problem and is continuing to do that. A lot of our uh, private economy and civil society have also mobilized in some impressive ways. People have been willing to put their lives on hold for what is effectively uh, a, a social calling. Um, and so I, I think there uh, there is some good news in what we're seeing in response to the pandemic. But there is also this, the simple fact that when we approach this crisis, when, when the virus confronted our society to begin with, we already were facing weakened social connections weakened uh, interpersonal institutions from the family and community and religion all the way up to our political life. And there's no, there's no doubt that that has meant that we entered this period with low levels of trust in one another at some level, and especially in our leaders, um, and that those low levels of trust have meant that things have not gone as smoothly as they might have in our country, and that we have a lot of trouble knowing where to put our confidence, knowing who to take seriously knowing what guidance uh, to, to follow and what to ignore. And so, you know, the, the kind of social crisis that has shaped our politics for uh, most of this century already is certainly playing a part in how our country is responding to this new crisis. Well, given that you've discussed the, the, the failure, the issue of leadership, I'd like to discuss one of the terms that you use in your book, and that's performative politics. And in your book, you are very critical of politicians who spend a great deal of time honing their brands, and certainly Trump does that. I'd like to throw a few famous names at you and ask you what is so wrong with personal brands, since that's kind of an issue in the Trump era. Especially, It is an issue in the Trump era. Weren't some of our most storied and, for the most part, successful presidents men who were gifted at personal branding? I'm thinking of Theodore Roosevelt, FDR, Harry Truman, John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, and to a certain extent, Woodrow Wilson given that it was he who made the State of the Union a grand ceremonial occasion with the president at the center. What was that, if not performative? And certainly FDR's contemporary Churchill was a master of showmanship and self-promotion. Can you explain what you mean by performative? And I'd like to ask, many of our least successful presidents, take Hoover, Carter, Nixon, were the most introverted and socially awkward. Are Donald Trump's rallies performative, but FDR's fireside chats were not? Was Harry Truman's 1948 whistle-stop campaign performative? What's the difference between being performative and being charismatic and a good communicator? Was Bill Clinton famous for being a policy wonk, also not performative, given his saxophone plan, et cetera? Yeah, it's a very good question. And, and it raises the issue of the uh, performative approach to institutions, which is really central to the argument of the book. In a sense, the book tries to understand the pattern by which we've lost confidence in some of our core institutions uh, over recent decades by thinking about what institutions do. And uh, every core institution in our society plays some important role, advances some important good. Maybe it educates children or it uh, enforces the law. Uh, maybe it makes law. Maybe it defends the country. Maybe it just provides a good or a service in the economy. But as it does that, that institution also shapes the people within it to take on a certain kind of form in society, a, a certain role that's defined by the institution and that in turns defines for them the nature of integrity in the work they do. And that kind of thing exists in our politics. There is such a thing as being a member of Congress. There is a way of thinking about the job of the president 
as defined by the institutional responsibilities of that office. The, the job can function as a mold, giving the individual who serves as president a certain shape in our politics and therefore enabling that individual to be effective. Now, the presidency has always been, in some important respects, a performative job. It is the, the president is our head of state as well as our head of government. But even in its performative aspects, it has always been directed to, to, or rather shaped by its role in our larger system of government. And every president we've had uh, until the current one has been shaped by some experience in the institutions of government, whether as a senior military officer or in most cases as a government official, an elected official or an appointed official at a very high level. And that has given these uh, men a sense of what the job involves from the inside, not just of the way in which it can provide them with a platform uh, for themselves. Now, the fact that they have also been every one of them, uh, a man of very big ego and uh, very high ambitions and someone who wants to be a world figure. There's no doubt about that. That's, that's clear uh, with every American president. The question is whether that has happened alongside and ideally in the service of some idea of what the presidency is. Donald Trump really is our first president who has not had any experience in the institutions of government before, who has been shaped by performative institutions, has basically been a performer in our popular culture for several decades before becoming uh, president, and who operates as an outsider even in the American presidency, and so spends a lot of his time tweeting at the government rather than speaking on behalf of the government, and in general understands what he's doing in performative terms. You'll, you'll see what, he was asked just this weekend uh, about the, uh, the, the, the nature of the daily briefings that he has been doing uh, about the pandemic response and why these continue to happen uh, in the way they have. And his answer was, the ratings are unbelievable. Six million people tune in. That's an unusual way to think about the nature of the president's communication role. I'm sorry, um, all that, that I, I dropped off for a moment. Could you repeat what his answer was? I didn't, uh, I didn't hear it at my end. His answer was, you wouldn't believe the ratings. Uh, oh. Six million people <laughs> tune in. And, you know, it's not crazy. I mean, the president wants to be heard by the public, but it's a very peculiar way to think about the nature of the job. And I do think President Trump does that in a different way, different in kind, not just in degree from the way that our presidents have tended to do. That is certainly not to say that we haven't had uh, grandstanders uh, before in the presidency. I, I think Woodrow Wilson is a great example. And, and the way in which he tried to turn the American presidency into a form of almost monarchical performance mm -hmm. is certainly related to what Donald Trump is doing. But I don't think that's a good thing. And I don't think it reflects well on modern presidents, many of whom have had the same problem. But I have one question. You wouldn't want to restrict the presidency, would you, to people who have had government experience? There's really nothing in the Constitution that suggests that that's so. And isn't, wouldn't that basically block anyone, millions of Americans, from aspiring to the presidency if they haven't had governmental experience? Well, I certainly wouldn't restrict it in, a, in an official way, in a legal or constitutional way. But I think when we're, when we're voting for president, it's not a bad idea to look for somebody who has done something like this before, who has been a governor Ideally, I think governors make much better presidents than senators, but even senators have some idea of what the, of what the, the job involves. Uh, so I think experience matters, but I certainly wouldn't make it a constitutional requirement. I don't think that's necessary. Well, when you speak about the, the, the role, that, that is a major argument in your book, and you say that institutions form us, if you say, and you say 
the, the key question in your book is a person should ask uh, apropos of their 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 job or their role in life or their institutional role, given my role here, how should I act? And I'd like to be a little contrary and say, isn't that a rather hierarchical kind of Downton Abbey view of the world? Wouldn't young Americans chafe at their idea of their roles being circumscribed? Really, that's more like Japan than the United States. Well, it's all a matter of degree. I certainly would not want to say that everything about us is defined by our relation to institutions and the roles we have. But I think that we lean too far in the other direction and understand our responsibilities and make crucial judgments only in relation to whatever it is we happen to want in the moment. I think that part of the challenge that we face now, part of the reason that we've lost our confidence in institutions, that we've lost our confidence in our leaders, that we're living in a populist moment that understandably and appropriately has enormous skepticism about the people who are in charge of various institutions in American life. A lot of that has to do with the fact that those people who are in charge do not stop and ask themselves, what responsibilities do I have because mm -hmm. I have this position? And instead, they just look to see how they can promote themselves, how they can advance their own interests. I think we would all be well served, not just our leaders, though certainly especially so, by stopping in moments of decision and asking ourselves, given the role that I have, given that I am a uh, president or a member of Congress or a, an employer or an employee, uh, given that I am a pastor or a congregant or a parent or a neighbor, given that, how should I make this decision? I think that that can be the beginning of a different way of thinking about institutions that can help us better understand our, uh, our, our circumstances in relation to our responsibilities not just what we want, but what we owe one another. Part of the social crisis we're living through is an, is an unwillingness or an inability to see things that way. And I think we need to do more of that, not to the exclusion of everything else. There's no risk that Americans are going to stop thinking about our own interests and our own situation. But there is a risk that we will stop thinking about our responsibilities and obligations. I think that's part of what has happened in recent years. And the book tries to push back against that some. Well, I'd like you to, to sort of start parsing some of the terms. For example, in the in the book, you write you use those terms mold and platform, and I'd like to sort of bring it back to your example, example from your own life, if you wouldn't mind. If could you discuss how the University of Chicago, for example, molded you, and how you navigate the dual roles of the American Enterprise Institute and the Journal of National Affairs as both institutions and platforms, or would you even agree with that characterization of them? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. I, I, I think a university is a, a good example of what a molding institution can be. It can inspire you with a sense of what its purpose is that then helps you think about what your purpose is. So that if you devote yourself to a life of learning, if you become a professor, an academic of some kind, then you're in a position where your job is to advance the search for truth through teaching and learning. And that gives you some wonderful things to do. You can work with students, you can do research, you can write, but it also constrains what you do. It means you're not just an activist, you're not just a political actor, you're not just there to impose your views on other people, you're there to advance the search for knowledge by teaching and learning. And I would certainly say in my experience as a, as a, as a graduate student at the University of Chicago, which I'm not objective about it, but I think is one of the most mm -hmm. wonderful institutions of higher learning we have in our country, um, got a sense of how that kind of institutional ethos, a sense of purpose, of, uh, uh, of, of a unified goal and ideal and sense of integrity, um, can create a community uh, 
that in turn shapes an institution to really advance its purpose in a wonderful way. And I do think that that idea of what are we for here, what are we about together, um, can help individuals make decisions where we constrain ourselves out of a love of what it is we're doing together. And it doesn't feel like constraint. I think a lot of strong institutions, the family is like this. There's a lot of constraint involved in living a good family life, but it's all done uh, in the service of a higher good. And certainly anywhere you work, I mean, I work at a think tank where it can be very hard to draw the distinction between building your personal brand and advancing some common mission, because a lot of what you do is write and speak and, in, you know, engage in interesting interviews like this. And a lot <laughs> of that can feel like, well, this is just about me trying to sell my arguments or my, uh, or my brand. But in fact, it has to be in the service of a larger purpose that's defined by some idea of the common good, what we're trying to achieve in our country, what we want out of politics, what we want out of the life of our society. And ultimately, I also have some specific concrete administrative roles at an institution like this. There are people who work for me. There are people who I work for. Those relationships have to always be on your mind when you're making decisions, when you're speaking on behalf of the institution. I think people encounter that in every institution we're part of, in, in whatever job we have, in whatever church community we might be part of, in our, in our neighborhood and in our family. Um, we are always both ourselves and part of something larger than ourselves. And that can be very good for us if we understand that in a balanced way and take seriously the obligations that come along with, being, with benefiting from the advantages of membership in an institution. It's not easy to keep that in mind. We easily become very blind to institutions. We, we ignore them when they're working well. We like to think we don't need them. But when they're not working well, as in many cases they're not now in American life, it's important to see them, to understand what they do for us, and to think about what we can do for them when they need help. Well, I think that's a, your, your comments about community and what institutions can do for us leads me to another question that you wrote in, you write in the book, Ours is an era of unusual isolation and solitude. And this relates to your quest, your comments about community. And this was, you wrote that before we, our national, recent national experience of government mandated social distancing and stay at home regime. So here we are in a mega Uber, um, you know, a, a state of, of national isolation like we've never seen. Do you think that the COVID-19 era is leading to a renewal of a sense of community and, and religious revival specifically? Or do you think that institutions such as churches and other houses worship will come less and not more relevant as more and more people find that suspension of religious services may for some, unfortunately, turn out to be more of a release than a loss? Yeah, how, I, and how would you how would you grade organized religion reacting? Are they giving? Are people, for example, are the churches giving in too easily to just saying, "Okay, we're just going to shut down," and this is not a necessary, this is not an essential service? That's a big debate. Yeah, I I, I certainly worry about that. I think that there are ways in which we are building habits of isolation, doing it now out of a sense of uh, uh, of responsibility, or maybe out of a sense that this is unavoidable. In some cases, we're just doing it because we have to, and we'll literally will get in trouble with the police if we don't. But I, I think that in the in the process, we are building habits of isolation that will make it even easier for people to be functional loners in our society. And I do think this can be a particular problem in religious communities where community is really an essential part of what it is we do. Some communities have tried to respond to that by keeping people connected, by uh, offering services remotely. Uh, I, I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm a member of a synagogue here where I live in Maryland that 
now offers us a lot of uh, of remote worship services by Zoom. And, you know, it's better than nothing, but I'm not sure that it's not getting us used to the wrong way to think about what our relationship is to uh, to, to, to our house of worship. And w- when this is all over and we need to go to services in person again, are we going to think, well, this is a hassle. Why don't I just stay home and, wa- you know, watch in my pajamas? I do worry about that because ultimately community is not just about communication. It's not just about uh, being able to be uh, to, to hear from one another. Community is about being together and working together. It's about achieving some common goal in a way that understands it as a common enterprise. And that really does mean physical communion. It means being part of something together. Um, I think that what, what we're seeing now, even the various technological ways we're finding to overcome the isolation and loneliness of this period, to connect somehow, to communicate, I think those may leave us with the impression that all there is to being together is communicating. And if that happens, then we will only see a further degradation of the capacity of our institutions to actually allow for common action, which after all is more than just communication. Yeah, that's interesting that you talk about the your skepticism because that comes clearly in the in the book about you or or you worry quite a or you you make the, your, your you express your concern about social media and how it is more divisive. In this case, I think that social media or at least technologies, maybe not social media so much. In fact, social media may be becoming less important than new technologies right. like Zoom. In mm-hmm. a way, there people are saying, "I don't want to be on Twitter right now." Possibly. Um, uh, getting back to politics, you make this provocative statement in your book, and this surprised me, and I'd, I'd like you to really kind of del- drill down a little bit this. You say, you make the provocative statement, Congress is weak because its members want it to be weak. And when I read that, I thought, Nancy Pelosi wants Congress to be weak? Chuck Sumer wants Congress to be weak? Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler and Mitch McConnell want Congress to be weak? I can see your point that they don't want to be left holding the bag when things go wrong. But in the case of, say, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, they want to transform our economy and way of life in the name of healthcare for all, the Green New Deal, et cetera. That does not suggest that they want a weak Congress. And those who loathe Trump and impeached him did not want, seem to want a weak Congress. Can you explain what, what you mean when you say that you want that Congress leader, congressional leadership wants it to be weak? It just seems yeah. kind of counterintuitive. Well, part of what it is is a, a an unwillingness to see Congress's role in the terms that are defined for it in the Constitution, which is as a legislature. Um, there's a lot of desire to uh, among members of Congress, including some in the leadership, to put themselves at the center of the action in the political drama of the the kind of national th- political theater that uh, Washington has become. But there's not a great desire. For to, to understand the policy process and national politics in general as having Congress at its center, which is how the Constitution defines our system of government. Congress comes first and not by coincidence. Our system is centered around a strong national legislature, but over time, our system has come to be centered instead around the figure of the president and the office of the presidency, because that office is more naturally performative and it stands in better stead in a time when what we expect of politics is a kind of performance art. And so a lot of members of Congress now, what they want out of Congress themselves is a platform, a platform, a way to build a following, to have more social media followers, to get a better time slot on talk radio or cable news, to perform, to build their own brand. That's what a lot of these younger members want. That's what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is doing. Um, She's not legislating. She's not spending her time in congressional committee hearings 
thinking about how to formulate legislation. If you, if you attend those hearings, and not just her, but a lot of members now, if you attend a committee hearing these days in Congress, you'll find a lot of individual members basically producing YouTube clips to use later. They're not talking to each other. They're not talking to the witnesses. They're talking to the cameras. And they're, they're creating a performance that they can then use when they're campaigning. And that's what happens on the floor a lot of the time, too. And there are not a lot of spaces now in Congress where members can talk to each other, can bargain, can negotiate, which, after all, is the work of the institution. All the spaces that you would think of as deliberative spaces have been transformed into performative spaces. Cameras are everywhere. And that means that all that the members are really doing is a kind of performance. Transparency that becomes this total means that there's no difference between the inside and the outside. Congress doesn't think of itself as having a job to do other than commentating on the president and on politics the way everybody else does. And I don't think Nancy Pelosi does want Congress to be strong. I think she has certain policy objectives that she would like to see advanced, mm. but, but she doesn't think about the way of advancing them through the structure, the nature of the constitutional system as it's, as it's written down and originally envisioned. Um, and, you know, it, it's all a struggle to control the narrative, to control the news cycle, rather than ultimately to craft legislation. And the fact is, we haven't seen legislation written in a traditional way that begins in committees, that ends up with some kind of peculiar bipartisan coalition after bargaining and compromise. I think it's been 20 years since we've seen a bill that was written that way. Well, one, one concern I have as a, just an average voter is, in, in the book, you talk about the revolt against expertise, and you discuss the you use the phrase there, you argue for the protected spaces for deliberation in Congress. But I wonder if that actually cuts off expertise, because if a legislation is drafted behind closed doors, moreover, doesn't that also sow distrust in, in institutions that concerns you? You're concerned about people distrusting institutions. But if things are not transparent, doesn't it prevent a doesn't it prevent those who possess expertise, but who don't happen to be members of Congress or work work for it from weighing in on legislation oversight matters? If it's if it's all kind of sub, you know, secluded in, 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 in a non-transparent fashion, doesn't that so distrust? Well, again, as I say, it's a matter of degree. And I think we have gone way too far in Congress in the direction of transparency. That move began for very good reasons. It was needed. It started in the 1970s in response to genuine corruption. Um, and there absolutely was some need both to disempower the, the, the Southern Committee chairman and mm-hmm. to open Congress up to the light of day somewhat. But at the end of the day, Congress exists in order to deliberate and bargain and compromise, and you cannot bargain in public. There's just no such thing. When you see bargaining happening in public, you're watching a show. You're not watching a real deal being made. Congress should absolutely be answerable for what it does. Everything it does should ultimately be public. Everything it does should be argued for in public. But the work of arriving at legislative language, the actual fundamental bargaining and compromise has to be done in some protected space. There has to be room. There has to be an inner life for an institution like Congress. Any institution needs that inner life. It can't all be about performing for the public. And so absolutely, I think there needs to be some transparency in public. Uh, in Congress, but the degree of it that we have now is totally debilitating. There is nowhere for members to actually do their work. The few protected spaces that exist are places like the leadership offices at midnight before the government shuts down, 
And that's where all major legislation ends up being written, and it's not by coincidence. So I think there has to be more room for the committees to do their work in private alongside public hearings. They do hear from experts. A lot of that happens. They can do that both in public and in private. I don't think there is a shortage of that, but a little bit more of the protected space for bargaining, for compromise, for legislative drafting would make an enormous difference in Congress and would give members a sense that there's work to be done in the institution, not just on the institution as a stage. Hmm. At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we were talking today with Yaval Levin about his book, A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Um, getting back to politics uh, or the mechanics of politics, this, is a, this, kind of pre, this precedes the, when they're actually in Congress and this is about how to this question relates to how we choose members of Congress and other elected officials. You say uh, I'm a, you, one thing I wanted to comment is you are not afraid to advocate reforms that fly in the face of populist movement and, and make you risk and you're willing to risk seeming like an elitist by some of your arguments. And you're you're brave in that respect. And go ahead, call me that. I don't care. I want to make these arguments. <laughs> um, you, you say, for example, you write. Reintroducing some layers of political professionalism into the candidate selection process, for example, by allowing a party party's elected officials to have more of a role in screening potential candidates at the outset would also be abuse. And that's your words. Do you see that that concept of, of more professionalism in the parties applying at this point in either the GOP or the Democratic Party at this point? Or is that in some ways precisely what happened with the Democrats in 2020 with James Clyburn's a seemingly crucial endorsement of Joe Biden. And Clyburn is that classic Mm -hmm. political figure of long, many decades of experience and stature. Yeah. So let me say first, on this question of elitism, because I think that these kinds of problems are always matters of degree, I think there has to be some willingness to push against the inclination toward populism. Not because I don't think our system is ultimately democratic. It must be, and it rightfully is. And it also has to even have something of a populist character. But I think it's easy for that to go too far. And it's not easy for anybody to push against it when it does. I'm in a place where it is easy. I don't have to run for office. uh, And and so, uh, you know, I can make the argument that there's too much transparency in Congress. I think every member of Congress pretty much would agree with that. And none of them could say that on the stump. And so, Somebody ought to say it, and if I can, I guess I should. I think there's a similar point to be made about the parties. Our politics now has become too partisan, not because the parties are too strong, but because the parties are too weak. Uh, the, The two major political parties as institutions have very strong incentives to broaden their their appeal to voters, right? They have to get people elected, both in uh in Alabama and in Oregon. Uh, those places sometimes have very, very different politics from each other. And that means that the parties have to build broad tents. But because of some campaign finance changes, because of, in a sense, the increasing populism of our politics, um, the two parties as institutions have grown very weak. They've become just platforms themselves. Uh, They don't really shape the political arena very much now. They just provide a stage for people to stand on and appeal to voters. And so I do think we've lost something in that process. And part of what we've lost is what expertise can offer politics. Expertise is not knowledge, right? Expert, what experts have is not information. What experts have, generally speaking, is experience. And I think experience brings a kind of prudential 
understanding of the, the, the patterns of events, the ways things happen, the, the, the problems to worry about, that can be very important for our kind of politics. I wouldn't want experts to be too powerful in our politics. And more than that, I'm a conservative. I think the knowledge that our society possesses is not contained in concentrated form in the minds of experts. I think that knowledge is only contained uh, in dispersed form in our society as a whole. And so I want institutions that aggregate dispersed knowledge, like markets uh, and like our democratic institutions. But they do have to have some access to expertise. And I think the parties provide that for our political system in very important ways. I would say that the experience the Democrats had this year did involve, at the end of the day, the party rising up a little bit at the end and wrestling some control away from the the tendency toward populism that's so powerful now in our politics. I think the Democrats dodged a bullet. They, they almost ran literally a socialist, maybe the only American who thinks the wrong side won the Cold War. They almost <laughs> ran that person for president. Um, and I think at the end of the day, they recognized what they were about to do and how disastrous it would be. And the party did take some action to try to change that with some trusted voices speaking up and some voters who were inclined to think more concretely and prudentially, um, ultimately taking control. I don't think they've ended up with a great candidate, but they've ended up with somebody who's a lot better than Bernie Sanders would have been. Um, I do plainly and openly wish that something like that had happened on the Republican side uh, in 2016. I think we would have ended up with a better president. Uh, And so I think there is a role for the parties and there is a role for expertise, a role, right? A supporting role, not a leading role, but we can't do entirely without it. And that's part of what this book tries to do. It's conservative in that sense too. It argues for balance. Um, And, you know, balance doesn't mean that we have to turn everything around. It means we have to push against where we're leaning too far. Hmm. Well, apropos of the populism, uh, you write, in the book, the past decade has seen the rise of pop-up protests, which can be massive and yet are evanescent and leave behind little of consequence. Now, I'm going to, this is a long question again, but I'm going to say, isn't it true, though, that even though the Women's March of 2017 has faded, the, the Women's March after that has faded in importance and become riddled with backbiting and race over class and backbiting over race and class divisions, it also led to a huge turnout of female voters in 2018 that in turn led to the Democratic takeover of the House of Representatives and a record-breaking number of women elected or re-elected to the House. Moreover, and this is, again, you're, you're, you're skeptical of, of mass movements, but I'd like to just put this out there. Occupy Wall Street led to the current focus on income inequality, which is now being studied at institutions like think tanks and universities, which are funded by other institutions like government and foundations. Couldn't protests therefore be seen as allies of institutions? And don't pop-up protests and mass demonstrations lead to the kind of character formation that you advocate? After all, it takes qualities such as perseverance and dedication to build mass movements. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm in a sense drawing a distinction between pop-up protests and mass movements. I think mass mm-hmm. movements have been enormously important in American political history. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is absolutely true that mass movements, even mass protests, can drive political change. But I think the, 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 the core model example of that in our modern history is probably the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, which was not just a protest movement. It, it was deliberately pointed at institutions. Its goal was to demonstrate electoral strength. It was to say, we can bring a million people to Washington 
and we're also going to bring them to the voting booth. I, I really don't think that the Women's March after uh, President Trump's election had anything like that kind of effect. Um, certainly, Republicans did poorly in the midterm elections that followed, and um, they didn't do well with women. I, I think you'd find that pattern in midterm elections after most presidential elections. But there was not a, an, an institutionalized form of what turned out in the streets in those women's marches. And look, those marches were just, I'm serious. I mean, they, they, they were ephemeral from the outset. They were purely performative. Uh, the, the, they were purely expressive and then they just disappeared. They weren't really trying to establish anything. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I don't think that ultimately they're a model of, uh, of how you translate political energy into institutional action. I think they're instead a model of a tendency that we have, and here social media is very important too, of mistaking expression for action, of believing that when we've said something, we've done something. Um, and it's just not true, right? So a lot of the kind of uh, online activism that you find in this era of social media basically involves proving that you're on this side or that side, whichever side your friends want to want proof that you're part of. Um, and, you know, ex- expressing the view that everybody else expresses and then sitting down or doing something else. That can be a kind of release. It can give you a sense that you've done something, that you've been part of something but it tends to point away from institutional change and not toward it. And I, I think there's a lot of that in our politics now, so that a lot of the energy that we find where people are very frustrated, very angry, um, ends up not being directed to real political change and instead just finds an outlet in expression that I don't think is very constructive. Well, you mentioned the civil rights movement, and I'd like to con- connect that to your, your belief in the importance of institutions. The civil rights movement, of course, was was the backbone was the the black church, and and also or and and you don't and yeah. could you discuss the role of of advocacy organizations too, such as the NAACP and the Southern the Southern mm-hmm. Leadership Conference and, and yeah, well, I, mean, I, I think they had an enormously important role in translating frustration into action, um, and and in establishing goals and priorities. So that when the, when the civil rights movement turned out on the streets in Washington or in southern cities, they knew what they wanted. They had a goal, a specific purpose, uh, whether that's a piece of legislation, whether that's a change in policy, that was what they were after. And that often is much harder to see now uh, in the kinds of mass movements that we have, even when there is the pretense of a political purpose you know, I, I would say, for example, the, the Green New Deal is a, is, is a performative and not a substantive um, political idea, right? It's completely unconnected to the, the, the actual empirical reality, the world we live in. It is a way of saying something, not a way of doing something. And I think in that sense, it forgets some of the most important lessons of the civil rights movement, which connected a lot of different kinds of institutions, as you say, um, and w- which ultimately tried to bring change about by working both both without and within the institutions of our society. It had a tremendously sophisticated recognition of what those institutions were and what they did. I think a lot of the political movements that we see in our country now would benefit from that kind of understanding rather than seeing themselves fundamentally as there to, channels pe- to channel people's frustration and express it, 
be heard. That's important, but it's important as a middle step, not a final step. I think we even find that in the way that people in our politics think about the, their own role as politicians. So w- where it might have been the case that people would uh, would seek a microphone in order to get power and then advance change, we now find a lot of people seeking power in order to get a microphone and mm-hmm. using Congress as just a step up to a Fox News show. I think that's just a distortion of what our political system is for that's really characteristic of this moment. Well, in terms of um, what people believe in, you, you use the phrase, this is, this is kind of interesting to me because it's so, it's, it's, it's sort of a religious, religiously huge or influenced um, terminology. You say, you use the phrase, um, a posture of submission. And that seems to me a little problematic in a vibrant democracy because submission does not indicate to me action or uh, vitality. It's, it's a very sort of passive Mm. Uh, um, so for those among our listeners who are not religious or who are otherwise uncomfortable with such phraseology, could you explain what this would entail and give a concrete example of an institution that demands such admission and what a person connected with such an issue, um, institu- with, with such a, a position in an institution gets? And for example, you write in the book, subsuming individual ambition in institutional ambition and directing it accordingly and isn't there something fundamentally alien to American life in this in this term? You also use the word devotion. Could you explain mm-hmm. what you mean by those words to those who don't share your religiosity? Yeah, I don't think they're alien to American life, though I do think they're unfamiliar to our our secular popular culture. Uh, so I, I agree with you entirely that these terms do have uh, religious roots, Jewish and Christian uh, roots, and that to fully understand them, I think you have to see that subsuming your own ambition within a broader common ambition is not ultimately a way of denying yourself, of canceling yourself. It's a way of empowering yourself. Uh, It does seem to me that precisely by channeling our ambition through institutions of common action, by seeing that in order to achieve what we want in the world, it makes sense to work together with others who want that too and who share that idea of the good. Um, By doing that, we can advance our own idea of the good much more effectively. Certainly, that pushes against our individualism. And this is a book that pushes against our individualism. But Mm -hmm. I don't think that individualism is the sum total of the American character. I think it is one important piece of the American character. And that another important piece that has always been there as part of who we are as Americans is a, an institution building attitude that sees the importance, the, the, the value of common action and that understands that through the ideal of institutions in a free society, not by doing what we're told, but by gathering together to achieve what we want with a group of others. You know, Alexis de Tocqueville, when he wrote about America in the 1830s, had this joke where he says, uh, if you get four Americans together, they'll elect a treasurer. Um, there's, a, there's a truth in that, or at least there has been, a sense that we as Americans just tend to organize. Uh, we tend to build things together. And you know, as the, as the West is settled, you find institutions cropping up just as, as, as quickly as, uh, as agriculture cropped up. And as, as Americans uh, advance into new frontiers, We've always tended to bring this tendency to build institutions with us. I think we have, we have lost something of that tendency now. Not entirely, 
but too much so. And part of what this book tries to do is remind people that this too is part of our character, that we're not just purely individualists, that, that freedom doesn't just mean doing anything you want, but rather freedom means closing that distance between what you want to do and what you ought to do. And that's what our institutions do for us. It's certainly not the simplest kind of liberal freedom, and I think it does require uh, some grounding in our religious traditions, but our society and our culture certainly have that grounding. Well, one question I had about about the, the, the group ethos versus individualism is that when I went turned to when I returned to graduate school in my forties, I believe that the, the the millennials were very group oriented, and yet they're also not institutionally oriented. Can you address the the, the, yeah. the mixture of, of the beliefs in that in that cohort? Because they're they're a pretty big cohort. They're the largest cohort. Yeah, I agree with you, and I, and I think that actually has a lot to do with this waning of our idea of institutions, so that the the way in which younger Americans now tend to be group-oriented is very expressive. Um, mm. I think you find that in identity politics, you find that in the, the forms of political engagement and social engagement among younger Americans. I think their intentions very often are, are quite good. I, I frankly think everybody's intentions are good. I, to really understand politics, you almost have to begin from the premise that everybody's trying to do good as they understand it, but that they they do incline to want to advance some idea of justice, but that that idea, as they've received it from our culture, is very expressive. Uh, it's all about affirming who you are and not enough about becoming a better person. And mm-hmm. that difference, the distinction between whether our institutions are there to form us to help us become equipped for freedom, or whether they're ultimately there to display us, to liberate us, to allow us to be who we are and express ourselves. That difference is on the one hand a kind of left-right difference, but I think that it is also now evident as a generational difference, where younger Americans are very drawn to an idea of social life in which expressing yourself and being yourself is the essence of being a free person. Um, I, I think there is an older idea of what freedom means that ought to be recovered in our society. And a lot of the work I do, frankly, is about that recovery. Well, how would the millennials' emphasis on being what I, what I want, as Robert George often says, if it feels good, do it. How mm-hmm. is that different from the baby boomers, hippie, kind of in the late 60s narcissism? And yeah. self- well, you know, if it feels good, do it is literally the motto of a certain kind of baby boomer narcissism. And so in that sense, it's not all that different. Um, I, I think that the, the boomers express those views against the background of a culture that was still very rooted in a more traditional understanding of freedom and of institutions and an American way of life. They were rebels. By this point, that, that rebel view is the dominant view. Um, mm-hmm. It still sometimes sees itself as a kind of rebel view, uh, and, and views itself as fighting the establishment, but it is the establishment. I mean, today, yes. the, the, the progressive millennials now who say they're fighting the establishment are the, the, uh, are the most establishment people in our society. And, uh, you know, the fact that they don't think of themselves that way is just part of the distortion that they're, that they're playing out. Well, in terms of, of what they would consider the establishment, that brings me to the question of, of the, the leading sort of like poster boys of the establishment. So do you have any comment on how the following people are leading their respective institutions? 
Mike Pompeo, Chief Justice John Roberts, William Barr, and University of Chicago President Robert Zimmer. Mm. That's great. I, I, I like thinking about institutions that way. And I actually think all of those people in different ways are doing a very good job. Um, I'm a fan of Mike Pompeo. I think that he is uh, he's one of the most serious people in our, in our politics now. Um, I think he takes the State Department seriously. He takes his job as the nation's chief diplomat seriously. Um, and it shows in how he carries himself and how he does that job. So I think he is a kind of model of what it is to uh, to think about your role institutionally, even in a time of great flux and uncertainty and, and crisis. Um, John Roberts, John Roberts is certainly an institutionalist. Um, you know, the Chief Justice has a distinct role in our system of government, even among Supreme Court justices, let alone among constitutional officers in general. The Chief Justice really embodies an institution. And the judiciary, in a lot of ways, is held out better, I think, than both Congress and the presidency against some of the kind of performative uh, enticements that uh, have distorted both of those other branches. That's happened some among judges. You certainly see some judges who grandstand um, and who use the bench as a kind of political stage. I think, on the whole, the Supreme Court has resisted that reasonably well. Um, what about Ginsburg. I mean, she's a classic sort of social media icon, right? Yeah, I agree. And I say on the whole, there, there are exceptions <laughs> there. Um, but even so, you know, I think the fact that uh, the court has resisted uh, bringing cameras in to mm-hmm. oral arguments, which even Justice Ginsburg has said she's against, um, and the, the, the tendency to maintain some some internal private spaces for deliberation, I think that has served the court well, generally speaking. Um, Chief Justice Roberts is not my favorite of the justices in terms of a judicial philosophy. Um, you know, I, I, I think Justice Alito is basically the, the, the beau ideal of a, of a judge, um, and he, does, he certainly doesn't always agree with the Chief Justice. But um, I do think that the Chief Justice is, an, is, is, is a model of an institutional leader and that uh, he's, he, he does well in that role. Um, I have generally the same view of the president of the University of Chicago. He hasn't, again, he's not an ideal president of the University of Chicago from my point of view, but that university has held out against some of the trends that have roiled the academy in general um, because it has a very strong internal culture that is a fundamentally academic culture. Um, it's not uh, first and foremost a, a venue for political activism. It doesn't see itself above all as a place to advance some kind of progressive agenda. That does happen on that campus, but it happens less than in other places, and the leadership certainly has something to do with that. How about William Barr? William Barr, yeah, I, I uh, you know, I, I have a pretty high opinion of Bill Barr. Um, he's... Uh, he has an attitude about the separation of powers that isn't quite mine. Uh, Barr is a kind of presidential supremacist, and I'm very much, as you'd find in the book, a congressional supremacist. But mm-hmm. I think that he takes his job seriously. He's willing to take criticism. Uh, he almost seems to relish that criticism. Uh, and I think he's generally been willing to take it uh, in the service of a commitment to his role as attorney general that served him pretty well. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I don't agree with every decision that he's made, but I think he takes very seriously the responsibility that he has uh, as attorney general. And, uh, you know, I think he has a lot to be proud of. I think both he and Pompeo are examples of what um, an executive, uh, a, a leader in the executive branch can look like. I don't think 
that President Trump is a good example of that. But I do think the two of them are. Is, is it, but isn't Mike Pompeo also a case of the revenge of the institutionalist because he's getting so much pushback and it's almost like the State Department is telling him what your role is here rather than him trying to, re, to, to act what he believes is the correct role. Well, but I think that in that tension is the right place to be. There is a role for the institution itself to insist on a certain kind of institutional ethic, but that can also easily go too far. And there is a role for the appointed official who runs that institution. This is especially, this tension is especially powerful in Republican administrations, of course, um, because the federal bureaucracy tends to be very much on the left. Um, and I think that tension can be healthy. The, the, the push and pull uh, tend, to, tend to balance both sides of the equation. And I think that's on the whole worked out okay. I, I am not someone who stays up at night worrying about the deep state, um, and, and I don't think that the establishment in our society is too strong and is crushing our freedom. I think the establishment is too weak. Um, it barely exists at all, and there is a role for a certain kind of, uh, of established institutional ethic in, in, uh, in government departments, but there's also an absolute need to push back against those where they become too pompous, too sure of themselves. Um, mm. At the end of the day, th- these, are, these are public servants. They work for appointed officials who in turn work for an elected official, and only that elected official actually has the legitimacy to exercise the executive power. The Constitution gives that power entirely to the President of the United States. And whether you like the President or not, that is the person with real authority. I certainly think we have to keep that in mind. Well, on that on that topic, I'd like to ask you about the cover story in the April 2020 issue of The Atlantic by George Packer entitled, The President is Winning His War on American Institutions, How Trump is Destroying the Civil Surface and Bending the Government to His Will. Do you, what was your reaction to Packer's mm-hmm. arguments? And did you think that was, that there, it was, it was a pretty damning indictment of what he, what he seemed to think were, they were craven and, and, and lily-livered in the face of Trump, which was kind of an interesting anti-institutional, this, this um, wonderful cadre of, you know, stalwart <laughs> levers and what they're doing and so forth. Yeah, I, I have to tell you, I was a little confused by that piece. I, I don't uh, I don't think it made its case. It's an indictment, yes, but after the indictment, you have to prove the case, and I don't think it did that. I, I think what's been wrong with, uh, with President Trump has had much more to do with weakness than with strength. I don't think he's bent the government to his will I don't think he's really even used the government very much to advance his will. I think he views his job in the mold of an outsider. He talks about the government an awful lot, but he has not actually been very effective at using the government. Uh, And I don't think he's a very good chief executive. But the the upside of that is that he's not a tyrant. I mean, the notion that he is uh, somehow... uh, bending government to his will and ending democracy is just absurd. Uh, I, I don't think that case can be proven at all. I think he's got powers that he hasn't used well. I don't think, unlike some some recent presidents, I don't think that he has exerted powers that he doesn't legitimately have. I don't think he's gone beyond the powers of the presidency in ways that I think Barack Obama did quite dangerously, even George W. Bush did in some respects. Uh, Donald Trump has not done that. So although there are things to worry about with this president, I really don't think that what's what that what that piece argues is one of the things we ought to be worried about. In terms of well, in terms of how Trump react relates to in institutional players, 
there's one very prominent one, Anthony Fauci, of long-standing institutional identification with the public health net, uh, uh, system in the United States. What do you do? You think that he's kind of a second um, Everett Koop, or, or how would you compare Koop with Fauci, for example, in terms mm-hmm. of? Coop was an outsider and and really but had a similar impact and he was a complete outsider to government whereas Fauci is a is a government man from start to finish. Yeah, I think Fauci is very different from C. Everett Coop. I, I, I look, I think Fauci is uh, is impressive. I, uh, I I got to know him a bit when I worked for George W. Bush in two thousand five and six, and among other things, I was involved in in pandemic preparedness back then, but also in some work around the response to the HIV epidemic and. Fauci was very impressive in both cases. He really is an expert. Um, he's an insider in good ways and bad. I mean, his his thinking is constrained in the ways that the thinking of insiders often is, but he's also a responsible person, a level-headed person. He brings experience and prudence to bear in ways that I think are actually what experts offer a president. Um, and so, you know, I think on the whole, where there's been tension between Fauci and Trump, Fauci, it strikes me, has been in the better position um, I don't think he wants to be the person in charge of making decisions about uh, how we return to economic life. I think he himself believes that, uh, that there have been times when the, the epidemiologists and, uh, and public health experts have been given too much power and there hasn't been quite the balance that should be struck between economic concerns and public health concerns. Striking that ba- balance is the president's job. And I think the failure to strike it has been a failure of the president largely. Um, so m- my sense is that the, the criticism of Tony Fauci has not been really in order. But on the other hand, I don't think Tony Fauci should be making those decisions. I think he should just be informing the process by which our elected president makes the decisions. How do you think Mike Pence, who is a former governor, of course, and a former member of Congress, is doing in terms of navigating the Trumpian waters as an yeah, institution? I- I have a pretty high opinion of Mike Pence, um, but that said, I, I think he's been much lower profile than I would have imagined. Um, hmm. There are some ways that uh, I'm sure he's exercising influence internally, but generally speaking, um, you know, he's been willing to uh, he's been willing to step up and kind of defend the team when it's needed. But he doesn't seem to me to be a particularly strong vice president. Uh, you know, the 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 vice president easily can become, of course, too strong and overbearing sometimes. But I do think that role uh, has a, a distinct purpose, and especially in an administration where the vice president has much more governing experience than the president, there are ways in which uh, he could be doing a lot more than he has been. But look, it, it's hard for anybody to uh, to shine and be seen um, when when the president is so good at getting all the attention. Um, and so it may be the case that Pence is doing a lot more behind the scenes than we see, but certainly from what I see... Um, there hasn't been much to that story. Who would you think was a was a model vice president? Oh, it's hard to say. I mean, that job is so bizarre that uh, finding a model is pretty hard. I I, I think that um, I think that in some ways Dick Cheney was a very good vice president. I don't know that he was a model vice president in every respect, but uh, you know, I'm not objective, having as I say served in that administration. Um, I, I don't think that Joe Biden really did anything as vice president. Maybe that is the model. Uh, maybe the vice president just sits there and waits. Um, but, you know, I, I think that uh, we should expect a little more than that. Maybe there are ways in which the older George Bush was a model vice president to Ronald Reagan. But Reagan had such a strong, clear sense of what he wanted out of the presidency and what he was trying to achieve 
that um, he was bound to be better at defining the role of his number two than uh, than more recent presidents. Well, you've all have taken up a lot of your time. I'd like now to ask you the traditional final question on the New Books Network. And you probably know this because you've been on the New Books Network before. And that is, what are you working on now? <laughs> well, you know, it's hard to be working on anything other than uh, pandemic-related writing uh, in the business <laughs> that I'm in right now. And so I'm doing a fair amount of that. But I'm also thinking about what a next book project could be. I'm looking at various options. Uh, I think I'll be doing more writing about Congress, whether that's a book or not, um, in the coming years. And building on this idea of of the need to reinforce our institutions. So my work is certainly going to be building on this book. Well, also, too, you mentioned your administrative work. And I just wanted to compliment the new this new program that you've created at the American Enterprise Institute that has an excellent podcast of its own, which I listened to an interview with you about. The Constitution is an institution, which was very interesting. So I recommend that people visit the AEI site and look for the podcast because it's very good. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. We're at AEI.org, and uh, you can find and a lot I, of our work I there. also listen to you as well on the Commentary Magazine podcast. You're kind of a guest star on there. <laughs> so that's that's very good. So I enjoy that. And, and also, I would recommend to listeners about the book that there have just Google Yuval Levins and the Time to Build, and you'll find many, many uh, video and audio interviews in addition to this wonderful one that we've just had. So with that, I will thank the scholar we've been talking to today and also public intellectual we've been talking today, Yuval Levin, author of A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>